Hi, I'm Emily Elchel. And I'm Mariah Larkin. And this is Mental. Where we're rethinking crazy. Our guest this week is Joe Kellen. Joe grew up in a small town in Minnesota and is currently living in Minneapolis, where they are working as a writer and theater artist, and their band The Florists just released their debut EP, Can You Feel the Stasis? You can check them out around the Twin Cities music scene and find them online. In this interview, we discuss dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a support-oriented, cognitive-based collaborative therapy that is aimed at building skills around mindfulness and implementing them into your daily life. Okay, I have a question for you. Okay, great. I anticipated that. Yeah. When did you feel like you made more of a transition into into music? Because I'm still you're still doing theater, mm-hmm. but it does seem like what you're doing with the florists right now is kind of a main focus. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I started playing music in a ser- in a semi serious capacity in late high school when I uh, I don't even know if I should name drop this agency because then maybe it'll be on the podcast and then they'll try to sue me for defamation. And they would offer you these just horrible shows. They didn't care what genre you were or connecting you to any related bands. They just would put you on these bills where there'd be like six bands on a Wednesday night. These venues, which were like, you know, I played an acoustic guitar just ripping off the mountain goats and I would be on stage at station four which is like an industrial and metal venue playing my little emotional tunes and i made an ep and uh played played a bunch of these bad shows and um had a lot of fun doing it uh and then i stopped playing music in any kind of performative capacity until i uh i met jared uh, the drummer and the florists later in college. And then we jammed together because we both uh, really liked pavement and we did stand-up comedy together. And then, uh, yeah, that's when I started performing again and then really started to take it seriously. And now, yeah, I would say that's a main focus in my life as an artist. And so you you all just released your first EP. You betcha. You have a track that's called Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, the first part of which is essentially a tape, like something that you would hear in, in a dialectical behavioral therapy session. Yeah, I can't say I ever... Um, I would hope nobody plays the florist in their DBT group or in a DBT personal <laughs> session. But everybody in the florist, at one point or another, has gone through a dialectical behavioral therapy track or some kind of program. And I didn't do group, but I still learned skills and had a a workbook and shit in in, in my private sessions with a therapist. And we thought it would be kind of interesting one day in practice. We were just screwing around and I had just gotten that delay pedal. So you hear this guitar come in and just like when you play some specific notes, if you set the settings on the amp that I have uh, to a particular to a, to a particular timbre, uh, it really sounds like that kind of ethereal, like emerging from the Blue Lagoon in Reykjavik, envisioning a kind of calm, static future for your panic-ridden self, and then 
we, we, we totally thought it sounded like a meditation tape and yeah. we're thinking about our own experiences in therapy and just kind of the, the corniness of it, but also um, the catharsis and uh, real calming qualities that those tapes have, as cheesy as they may be. And so we decided to make a kind of satirical track that hopefully communicates both of those sides. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting that all of you have actually gone through some sort of DBT. What brought you to try to seek that kind of help? Because DBT is, is such a, it's a really specific kind of therapy. What, what brought you to that and how, how would you measure that experience against other therapeutic methods that you may have sought out? Yeah, I think from my conversations that I've had with therapists that I've you know, seen, DBT and mindfulness seem to be really popular right now. They're kind of, they're almost like weird zeitgeisty. It's like zeitgeisty therapy almost <laughs> from how I've heard people talk about it. And uh, I wouldn't, I did not deliberately choose DBT. Um, I, uh, in early college, I had started to reconcile with symptoms of depression anxiety, panic disorder, which had been a little bit latent in my life for a number of years, but it sort of came to a head. In the beginning of undergrad, um, I was really not coping well, drinking all the time, very, very suicidal. uh, And I started to have these moments where I would disassociate. And what that meant for me is I would get built into or, or, or whipped up, I guess, into these situations of panic. And I would get so caught up in my response to my anxiety that I would disassociate and black out. Um, and I would black out for, you know, periods of anywhere from uh, a few seconds to 20 minutes. Um, so I would lose that time and come to in a daze. And that was really frightening. And um, it really inspired a lot of dread in me, a lot of, uh, you know, really uh, profoundly shitty ideas about what I ought to do with myself. And I realized um, as that culminated in an incredibly unhealthy lifestyle that I needed to do something. I needed to um, do something or I was, I was going to die. My life was in danger. So I uh, kind of reluctantly described some of this to my mother and she was like, well, dude, you gotta, you gotta go, (laughs) you have to go to therapy. And so I did it and I, and I feel lucky actually, because I just called up the, the hospital, um, in, uh, in, in Minneapolis and I got assigned a person, a therapist, and I was told their name and then I had an appointment. So I just kind of was having a grab bag of uh, <laughs> therapy. I didn't really research what I was supposed to, you know, any type of therapy, which might be, which might jive with how I thought. I just knew that I needed help and um, hadn't, hadn't had a personal therapist yet at that point in my life. So I just called. And then the person that I ended up getting connected with was really amazing, really fabulous. I, <laughs> I am kind of a, uh, I promise this is related. I'm kind of a <laughs> theory nerd 
slash philosophy nerd sort of critical discourse nerd for the third time. I really had at that point in my life drawn myself into a corner with these ideas that I had been reading about and sort of uh, the value of human life, uh, the ethics behind whether or not one should kill themselves, where, where, where what, what, what ought somebody do to either deserve to be alive or what is deserving to be anything. And with that endless prodding and questioning, I had sort of, you know, comfortably convinced myself that I, it was totally um, a sensible choice for me to kill myself. Hmm. And the therapist that I had gotten connected with, he actually was, um, he was a trained counselor and everything, but he also earlier in his academic career had a graduate degree in critical discourse studies. So he was able to talk to me in the language that I had used to sort of, you know, capture, capture my, any, any kind of inkling to survive and kind of squish it out. Um, so what we did for the first few sessions is we just argued, we just argued. So once he finally got to me about these basic theoretical conceits and I was starting to listen to him and really respect him, we started DBT and, uh, yeah, it kind of changed my life. I mean, I think that what DBT did for me in the long run is it allowed me a set of tangible skills and strategies with which to challenge my anxiety and mm-hmm. to cope. So that's a long answer to that question, but that is how I uh, started <laughs> DBT. So I guess DBT chose me, man. I don't know. But at the same time, I, I'm not like a booster for DBT. <laughs> <laughs> you should do what makes you feel good and what helps you. Yeah. I think it, I definitely feel lucky, especially hearing stories from other folks about their experiences, um, you know, with psychologists and psychiatrists and feeling, um, feeling ignored or uh, not, not gelling um, relationally with these people having different communication strategies, all, all that stuff. It seems like there's a litany of experiences to pull from, but looking at my own, one of the things that I, and, and this sounds like I am talking shit about DBT And I kind of am, but I'm also really not. When I say that I truly view my experience and subsequent practice inspired by DBT and in DBT is really kind of the art of like a really intentional delusion, Hmm. if that makes any sense. It's like you are really subscribing to these presuppositions about like rationality, you know, thinking about like, oh, but is this, is this thought pattern, you know, you're being dialectical about it. It's like, is this thought power, is this thought pattern, which is kind of the tension between two poles in my head, you know, I'm feeling these extreme sadnesses, these extremes, these extreme happinesses to pluralize a word that shouldn't be pluralized. Whatever. You get what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, what, what's the most rational conclusion here what's what, what what's my what's my level of reasonability how can i think about reasonability and my place you know from the perspective of wanting to survive how can i make sense of my feelings and often i mean of course you're in therapy they're always going to choose the scenario and the response which is in the interest of you being alive right you know 
the thing is, is that like philosophically, that's an obvious, you know, you have an obvious inclination, an obvious bias towards not dying. I think it's a good bias, but nonetheless, it's a bias. And so it's really fraught and really easy to poke and prod at, you know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of built for that. I feel like the human mind is so um, A, unknowable and B, um, uh, um, uh, volatile that you, you know, it, it, it's kind of the perfect exercise for thought and because that's where it comes from. And also it's, you know, easy to flip over a million times and end up with a pretzeled brain and you don't really have anything, you know, for it other than uh, an enabled depression. So I think that that delusion is quite useful and delusion has a negative connotation, but I can't really think of a better word to describe it. Yeah. And I mean, if the delusion essentially just means that at the end of it, you're going to still want to be alive, then yeah, I think that why can't it have a positive connotation in that context? Yeah. It's one of the situations where um, I feel like when you say the ends justify the means, they're, they're fairly, they're fairly healthy means. So I think that I am down to uh, continue practicing them in my best interest. Yeah. Thank you. That was, yeah, this has definitely offered me a new perspective on, on DBT, which I've honestly never really given that much of a chance, but I don't know, maybe this conversation will, will inspire me to, uh, to create my own delusions. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's DBT's new marketing. Uh, yeah. Some, some marketing director just heard that. Perfect. <laughs> that's hilarious. No. Yeah. I think, um, I, 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 it's worth a shot. I think that it's really helpful for people who, or I shouldn't say for people who it's helpful for me because I am somebody who thrives on um, instruction and structure. And then I am able to kind of move within that structure. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know. It offered me some kind of b- both, both agency and that I could name certain experiences mm. or certain patterns that I knew that I would get into, but could never articulate and, you know, going through that program gave me the tools with which to both combat and name those things, label those things and categorize them. And for me, that was super comforting. It kind of felt like uh, some kind of psychological expandable folder or something. I mean, you had, you had touched on this earlier. You felt like your experiences with, with certain mental health issues had been there for a while, but hadn't necessarily been addressed. When did it all really start for you before you realized that it was something that you needed to seek help for? I suppose the first indication, not to me, uh, but probably to my family, that I was dealing with some kind of atypical neurological thing was that when I was a kid, I, in class, would shake my hands really, like, violently. uh, And later, I wouldn't find out about the actual genesis of this until I was, like, 19, Uh Uh-huh, I have Tourette's. Um, But at the time, I was just kind of, I mean, I think that uh, my parents just kind of wrote it off as hyperactivity, but I would do it in class. You know, I'd be sitting at my desk and I would be not focusing on the material and I'd just be shaking my hands. I'd just be like really fixated on just shaking them and looking at them and the feeling of that occurring and what, for whatever reason, it just felt really good. So I did it. Um, and I didn't really, I wasn't really able to control it so much. So I 
did that. And then um, as a response, because, you know, it's school, people want you to sit down and shut up. I, I, I you know, now, and now I teach children. So I definitely on the other side, while I would never, uh, I don't think I really respond the same way that my teachers did to my disruption in class. Uh, I totally get the feeling of wanting to tell a child somehow that they need to focus and they need to sit down. And I think that they're, they're just fairly unreachable um, in certain situations. So I was unreachable for sure. So what happened was I just kind of uh, was legislated out of it. I had a behavior workbook that uh, my parents would sign off on every day, you know, whether I was good in the morning or bad in the afternoon, what have you. And so through that kind of practiced uh, shame and, uh, you know, monitoring, I began to internalize those ticks. And now um, I still, I mean, I have every, every day, most moments of every day, I'm either tapping my fingers or doing um, some kind of noise with my mouth. Um, just cause you know, I later, like I later found out I have Tourette's. Um, so I, uh, I, I never knew how to name it and I never knew what it was, but I knew it was bad. And I knew I was very much encouraged not to do it. Do you feel like you, you would have felt like it was a bad thing if they hadn't, as you said, shamed you and, you know, had you do all these different behavioral worksheets and things like that, like if they hadn't really put all this negative attention on it, do you think it would have been something that you would have recognized as being anything out of the ordinary or being anything inherently bad? No, I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was great. Um, So yeah, I, uh, I I think I was cognizant that it was distracting. Like I was aware that other children were looking at me like, what the fuck is this person doing? So I had, I had an idea just kind of intuitively that it was strange, but I didn't, you know, I mean, I didn't put a name on it or some kind of morality judgment on it or, you know, uh, some kind of, you know, points against or for me. Um, I just was the thing I did. I did it all the time. It was just kind of how I, um, I remember I would always tell people, uh, I would tell my parents when they'd ask me about it as a kid, I would be like, yeah, this is how I think. Like it helps me imagine things. And so that's what I would do. I would just kind of like space out in my mind and shake my hands and just kind of, it was like a weird, I think now that I'm talking about it, it was some kind of, not like a meditation, but just some kind of weird hyperactive centering exercise. I don't know. It was just a thing that I did. I can't, it's the best I can describe it, but it would help me focus. And I mean, still now I will tap my hands. I'll do things if I'm trying to solve a problem and it, for whatever reason kind of calms my thoughts. So that is the experience of it. So I don't know. I liked it, but um, yeah, I, I, I did that. And then as far as um, the rest of, mental health things coming into coming into focus um i had a i had a pretty tumultuous childhood uh a lot of really intense stuff going down and some abuse and all that other stuff which is a whole other saga but um when i was probably like what sixth or seventh grade um i think no probably younger probably like fifth or sixth grade there was a really distinct moment which was a break in my family. And without getting into it too much, I had witnessed a sibling of mine in a really, really traumatic context, and they had to leave our home and go uh, to a 72-hour hold at the nearest mental facility. 
And I lived, I grew up in a small town and what that meant was this narrative was everywhere immediately. People knew that my sibling wasn't in school. Um, they knew that I had been adjacent to this whole fiasco. And, uh, you know, it was a Catholic school and it was a tiny kind of town. And we had our guidance counselor. And I remember in front of, uh, in front of the class, I got, I, I, they, they came to the door in the middle of like, I don't know, like science class or something. And, um, they were like, Hey Joe, you want to come out here? And, uh, I did. And all my classmates watched me walk out and they chatted with me asking me if I was okay, how all these things were going, um, whether or not, you know, I felt sad about what had happened. And it was so recent and such a violent, um, moment that I, you know, I didn't know how to respond. And so the school responded for me and they, uh, put me in this after school program, uh, called club friendship which uh, was an after-school program where all the kids with some kind of, uh, you know, weird home situation, I guess, would all sit down in the church basement and uh, we would eat ice cream and uh, circle little half sheets of paper which gauged our emotions on a scale of one to ten and uh, we would just uh, hang out and uh, you know we were all aware it was like oh wow like his parents are divorced or she has some kind of behavioral issue and we're all here together but we are uh, not really discussing any of the like actual problems at home it was kind of like a weird like emotional band-aid it was like oh yeah we get to have butterscotch wow like, it was like <laughs> that kind of uh response as, as young children so i think that was really that period in my life because it was so tumultuous and because my home life was so bad it was um really a turning point in how i thought about and and, and pictured myself I pictured myself as kind of coming from some kind of dysfunction, although I still wouldn't have named it that at the time. I just knew that stuff was weird. Um, <laughs> like I, cause I, I really, uh, I'll be straight up. I resented um, those people. I resented that program and I really, really wanted to leave. Um, I, I, in that, in that point in my life, I felt very, um, very disconnected from the institution that I had come up in because I had gone to that school for several years. And um, I really felt um, just belittled and condescended to. And I think that other kids in the program felt the same way. So I think that I would have felt much better having been invited to speak my piece. But at the same time, I think that it's hard for um, adults in that scenario to talk to kids because they're so afraid of harming them in some way. Or, I mean, if you're a teaching professional, I think that um, dealing with parents in that kind of capacity, especially when you know home life uh, is not great and you live in a very, you know, repressive, right-wingy, kind of chaste small town in Minnesota, you're not going to talk about your feelings openly. You know, that's just not really in the category. Of, that's not that's not a choice or it didn't feel like one, I would have assumed. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that I knew at that point that something was different at the very least. And club friendship patronizing uh, me probably didn't help. How, how has that experience that you had in club friendship uh, affected the way that you you teach? I mean, how does it, 
How does it influence the way that you interact with, with children? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I've really thought about a direct correlation between those two events, but if I had to come up with something, I think that, um, one of the coolest things about teaching children is that, uh, you just remember, you got to listen to kids, like kids have things to say to you and they are, while they may not have language, which is the same as yours, they still have these feelings, which you can intuit if you'll just listen to them and try to speak their language for a little while. Um, I actually had a hilarious moment with this girl in a class of mine where I asked her some question about like how she felt about um, some certain thing about Halloween. It was kind of like I realized as I asked her the question, I was like, ah, this is kind of convoluted. I don't really know if she's going to know what I mean. And she looked at me and she paused for a second. And then she said, oh, I'm seven years old. (laughs) It was hilarious. (laughs) Like that was her response. Like, you know, like she, she, even though she didn't know what I was talking about, she knew that she like could talk to me and say, I don't even have any perspective on that. You know that I know that don't ask me that question. So kids, I think can very, what they can do is call you on your bullshit. And I think that I am just trying to be cognizant of that and just respect them. And no, like it's, it's, it's hard when you're like in a position of authority. So you have to be an asshole to kids, which no one wants to do, but sometimes kids are assholes to you. Let's not, let's not forget that kids can be totally conniving and evil, Um, (laughs) but they're also really brilliant. And I think that that is kind of, it just reminded me of, you know, the things that I would hope I'd get to be able to say as a kid and not being able to get to say them. And I try to, when the moment is right, let kids speak their piece and talk and just like be themselves. This week's episode featured music from The Florists from their debut EP, Can You Feel the Stasis? Thank you so much for listening. Mental was created by me, Emily Alchel, and me, Mariah Larkin, with production assistance from Asa Secker, and scoring by Karis Tan. If you like what you've heard, go ahead and check us out on iTunes, and be sure to subscribe. And please leave us a review, it would really help us out. This has been Mental. Rethinking crazy, because you're not crazy. 